Hi, everybody. I am Matthew Murphy Bird, Esquire. <laughs> and I am Stephen Andrew Bird. And this is Marvel Review Club. everybody welcome back usually when we do two parts of one month we record them on one sitting this time we didn't so some time's actually passed so we could talk about what's going on in our lives but i have nothing particularly interesting going on in my life everything's going well how about you steve i don't know some people tend to be kind of fascinated with the uh, laser stuff oh yeah you got to talk about your laser beer right all right okay so um as some of you may know I operate a laser machine for my local makerspace, and uh, I'm actually part-time staff running the department. So the, through an odd series of events, uh, a local brewery, one that's like literally next door to the makerspace, uh, ended up creating a beer based on my preferences and named after me. It's called Laser Steve. And uh, I actually did I'd had a conversation with this guy like a year or so ago, and then I had completely forgotten about it. But he went ahead and he created a beer of my liking and named it Laser Steve. And I am... There's a uh, drawing. There's a drawing of Laser Steve with lasers coming out of his eyes that is up on their menu. Yeah, yeah, with uh, lasers coming out of his eyes and bouncing around the whole little chalkboard thing for the uh, for for the for the flavor. Yes, it is uh, wonderful. I've got my second growler of it so far. Uh, <laughs> my this second is... one I actually got on my 50th birthday. I guess that's the other thing. I just turned 50. Yes. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's that's a that's a that's a thing. <laughs> we should go ahead and jump into these books. I got to say right up front, a lot of Wayne books tonight. I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> convince people that you've mistakenly chosen to listen to a podcast that will not result in a fulfilling hour of your time. We're still going to have fun with these books. But my God, they're pretty lame. There was only one. <laughs> there are six stories tonight in four books, and only one of them I thought was particularly good. So let's have that be a big mystery as we wait into the night, which of these stories I will think is actually good. But I should say tonight's episode will be more of a laughing at than a laughing with episode is <laughs> my my general feeling about tonight's episode. Okay. Um, well, I, I did not have quite, well, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't really think about it too much. We'll see if I agree as we go through. Four issues, six stories. We're going to start with Tales of Suspense, number 53, featuring the power of Iron Man. This is the first issue of Iron Man in which they actually admitted that the Watcher is now the backup feature in this book. Uh, it's certainly one of the most low-key, under-the-radar features in Marvel history. The fact that the Watcher had the backup in Tales of Suspense before Captain America started taking up the second half of the book. But here is a little admission of it on the cover. But we have the pic- the actual picture is of the main story. The Black Widow strikes again, and the Black Widow is dropping a tank on Iron Man. So let me just say, let's definitely set a five-minute clock on this one. You want to set a five-minute clock? I can set a five-minute clock. Yes, I can. And you are on the clock. Yeah, we're putting this one on the clock because this one sucks. This is just a terrible <laughs> story. Iron Man, the Black Widow strikes again. Once again, story plot by Stan Lee, script by N. Korak, who is... Don Rico. Don Rico, we determined last time. Art by Don Heck. So this is just the world's lamest story. Tony Stark has invented an anti-gravity process, but can't figure out how he himself did it. He's showing it off to the army, like, hey, here's how to make tanks float in the air. Don't ask me how I did it. I can't figure it out. But somebody snaps <laughs> a picture of it. It appears in the paper. It, the, the Of course, makes its way directly to the Soviet Union, where Khrushchev is reading about the paper. and. He, and also 
Black Widow is reading about it in the paper in whatever back alley dive she was hanging out in at the end of last issue. She then, <laughs> so then she realizes this is a way to get back in the good graces of Khrushchev. She then comes up with the world's most brilliant villain plan ever. She will just say to Tony Stark, hey, it's me, the villainous Black Widow, who tried to kill you and laughed at you all those times in the last issue. I want to come talk to you again. Not even, not even like, I'm good now. She doesn't even say that. She just says, let's hang out again. And he's like, okay. And he says, hmm, so the lovely Madame Natasha is still alive and wants to see me. Ooh, to explain. <laughs> so she's going to explain. She then walks into his office and says, hey, you got any new weapons? And he says, yes, I do. Funny, you should ask. Here's my latest weapon. At which point she then pretends to fate. And he's like, oh, let me help you. But then up oh, she hits him with gas and says, I'm going to steal your new weapon. He is totally shocked by this. Only eat pepper is not shocked by this. And it's like, dude, what yeah. do you expect to happen? And so then he, she then at this point gets on the phone with Khrushchev, which that wasn't really how long distance worked in the, in 1963, it would be kind of hard for a woman in America who, uh, to get on the phone with the head of the Soviet Union. But, um, she, Khrushchev tells her, keep doing you're back in our good graces. Keep doing the, the good stuff. She is running around. And of course, since this is an autopilot Iron Man comic, she is going around wrecking Tony Stark's factories. And of course, <laughs> the U.S. Congress is like, we don't know if we can trust Tony Stark because someone's wrecking his factories. And we should, for some reason, blame him for that. Soviet goons show up in her apartment. It's like, oh, let's take this weapon from you. Let's see how this works. They're throwing cars flying through the air. That causes Iron Man to find them. Iron Man comes and beats up the goons, but she is throwing him around with her device, drops a building on him. Then she goes, they tell him, the Soviet thugs tell her she has to go rob Fort Knox. So she goes over to Fort Knox, lifts up a mountain, presumably to drop it on Fort Knox. Iron Man was not killed when the building crashed on him, goes around, finds her, shoots the weapon, says this proton electric charge will destroy the output of the ray forever. Black Widow gets away with the weapon, but Iron Man says it won't do her any good major. My proton beam destroyed its power completely. The end. Oh my God, what a terrible story. This is just <laughs> everybody. It's one of these stories in which everybody just has to be really stupid. And specifically, Tony just has to be really stupid. This is, oh, yeah. she does in no way does she worm her way back in. There is no worming going on here. There is no, there is no deception. It is just like, hey, I'm an industrial spy. I stole from you last month. I want to steal from you again. And Tony's like, well, okay, I'm sure you won't steal from me. And then she's like, no, dude, I told you I'm coming here to steal from you again. I have stolen from you. I have now stolen your new stuff. And he's like, but, but what? Huh? I don't understand. <laughs> he is ensorcelled. <laughs> he is um, ensorcelled. <laughs> so uh, two two panels that jump out at me that this is the only uh, real things that I think were worthy of note in here on page six, fifth and sixth panels. Both have some uh, interesting dialogue. Iron Man is thinking about his last encounter with Boris and Natasha, and he's thinking to himself, Boris is finished. I'll let the Black Widow go. After all, she is just a woman and such a lovely one. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're making bad decisions here, dude. And then, uh, and then the very next panel says, but cunning and ruthless though she may be, Madame Natasha is a woman, as Iron Man has said. And as such, she loves pretty things. So, and she's thinking, she says to herself as she goes by a jewelry window, those jewels are lovely. Before I work for my country, perhaps I shall do something for myself. So, <laughs> oh, and there's the time. 
Yes. Looks like uh, you you did that efficiently. So she is she is very much influenced by Nanachka, the great old Ernst Lubitsch film written by Billy Wilder. Credit Garbo played a Soviet who was sent to Paris and was swayed by the jewels in the shop windows. And uh, so we've got little hints of that here with Natasha. All right. Uh, that, that is not something I knew about. So thank you. All right. So uh, now that we have gotten through that, uh, I think that you uh, are now looking more forward to uh, talking about the next story. Yes. Now we get to, of the six stories we'll be talking about this one, by far my favorite. They sort of decided that, well, people are crazy about the Marvel Universe, so let's go ahead and keep doing the sort of one-off Larry Lieber science fiction stories that we like to do, but let's go ahead and turn them into, add just a thin patina of Marvel Universe on the top of them. And so they've been saying, oh yes, they've had Larry Lieber written in penciled sci-fi short stories, but hosted by the Watcher as Tales of the Watcher. And these were tales of the Watcher. These were Watcher telling us tales, much like in the back of Tales of Astonish, the Wasp has been telling us science fiction tales, also written and penciled by Larry Lieber. But this issue, we do something different. Once again, it's story plot Stan Lee, script and art by Larry Lieber, inking by Paul Reinman, Marvel's best current inker. But this is the actual origin of the Watcher. The Watcher is telling us about himself for once. And we get a just little story, very efficient, little five-page story in which we get the origin of the Watcher, but I think it's delightful. The Watcher is telling us about, oh, you may be wondering why I always watch and I never will permit myself to interfere with anything. Oh, well, let me go ahead and tell you about the world I come from. He never names the world. He never names his race, but he says, here's the world I came from. Here's the race we were. They were all guys with big bald heads and togas on just like himself. <laughs> and, but first he says, Eons before the birth of your world, my people lived in a distant galaxy. We were a wise, highly civilized race, and we dwelled harmoniously in beautiful floating cities. And I got to say, he ain't lying. This is a beautiful floating city. I really love the floating city in the upper left-hand corner of page two. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, good Larry Lieber. You know, I generally don't think of Larry Lieber as being a great science fiction designer, but he does quite a good job with this. He then thinks about a time when all of the big bald-headed toga-wearing guys on his planet were like, you know, we've got all this wonderful stuff. We live in a futuristic society without any want or need. And, you know, maybe we should share it with the rest of the world. Maybe we should share our fantastic powers, which are, of course, atomic powers with the rest of the world. And other people are like going, no, I don't think we should. And some people are saying, says, I, Emmanu, disagree. We worked hard to obtain our way of life. Why should we make it easy for inferior peoples to profit by our toil? But then he's sort of outvoted. So then they decide, let's turn ourselves into energy, go to other planets, give them our amazing technology, and just watch how wonderful things work out for them. So they go to another planet, and they find a bunch of green bug-eyed aliens. They say, we bring you the secrets of nuclear energy to enrich your very lives. They go, but what is nuclear energy? It says, it is a form of almost unlimited power derived from the atom. It will enable your flying machines to sail off for months. It will heat entire cities at almost no expense. You can even use it to conquer disease. I don't know how well that's worked out here on Earth, but okay. And so then they... I, I, I guess that probably radiation therapy for cancer was probably relatively new at that point. I guess, yeah. Uh, so then... So we never did manage to make nuclear flying machines that stay a lot for months, but I guess we did do nuclear submarines, so we got close. Yes. So then they say, all right, we're going to give you all this wonderful nuclear technology. And then, hey, I tell you what, while we're in the neighborhood, there is a fantastic multi-dimensional eclipse that is going on nearby. So we're going to zip over there and check that out. See you guys. So they leave. And of course, as soon as they leave, the green bug-eyed aliens are like, 
Let others use the atom for peace. I will use its awesome power to create unbeatable weapons that will destroy my enemies. They very quickly devolve into nuclear war. They nuke the hell out of each other. The Watchers are enjoying watching this eclipse when they're like, hey, on the way home, let's stop bigger on that planet and see how it went. And turns out it went terrible. They've already nuked each other to hell and back. And they say, you, you monsters, you gave us the secret of nuclear energy and that demoniacal force destroyed us. May you be cursed till the end of your days. So then the Watchers decide, you know, I think we've learned our lesson. We will never interfere in anyone's lives again. We will just be Watchers from now on. And that's what they do. They become a race of Watchers. And that, in very in five very efficient pages, is the origin of the Watcher and the entire Watcher race. And I think it is a humdinger of a story. I think it is shockingly well-penciled by Larry Lieber. It is, of course, well-inked by Paul Reinman and well-written by Stanley and Larry Lieber working together. I think that we've had this character of the Watcher, this character who is very much a Jack Kirby character, larger than life, alien from the human race, you know, set up, set apart, set above. But this is coming up with the reason why he would be that way. And I think it works. Yeah, uh, it's kind of two things at once. And I found that any kind of mythology that's going to survive down through the ages, uh, whether you're talking about national myths or folk tales or religions or whatever else, um, I sort of use mythology as a a wider word than many people do, just to mean that essentially the essential stories of of our world generally will be able to be read in two ideologically opposite ways. And I think that this, possibly through a combination of Stan Lee's intent and Larry Lieber's execution, but that's just completely a speculation on my part, sort of does that. So this seems to be moving another step forward on what seems to me to be Stan Lee's uh, drift from anti-communism to anti-militarism, which seemed by the times timing of things to be time to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. Um, and I, I think that this is fascinating in, as part of that growth. At the same time, the other sort of lesson of this story is if you give things to people who haven't earned them, then all they're going to do is create death and destruction, and it will do, more, do them more harm than good. Yes. I don't know how much of that was one, how much of that was the other. As I said, my guess is that Stan Lee came up with the anti-militarism concept. And then this is the way that Larry Lieber did it. But some sometimes that sort of um, contradiction or not contradiction, that kind of double meaning that you can find in these things really helps make things resonate as a really deep and profound story. And yeah. uh, I think that that helps here, you know, just for an example, like the Robin Hood myth, uh, you know, it can be read as stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, uh, which can be seen as very much a, a proto-socialist or anarchist kind of uh, a message. But on the other hand, it's also a story of loyalty to the real king. A tax revolt and loyalty to the real king. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, it's interesting because like the guy who turns out to be right sounded like a total dick. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I... my point. That's exactly my point. Yes. And so the other thing is about Larry Lieber's art. I have found that the way that his art looks varies greatly with who is inking it. So I don't know whether yeah. that means he was penciling very lightly or maybe he just wasn't that great. And the different inkers were sort of fixing his stuff in their own unique ways. <laughs> you know, I'm, it, I'm probably one or the other or both. But yeah, his stuff can look wildly different depending on who's inking it. I don't know if it's in your version, but in, in the original comic between the Iron Man story and the Watcher story, there was another Stanley Lieber story called the omen 
which was inked by George Bell, Marvel's worst inker. And indeed, it looks night and day different. Yeah, uh, that story is in here. But I noticed there's also a, uh, a inker that he's often paired up with named, I think, Matt Fox, yeah. who has yeah. sort of almost like a Basil Wolverton kind of yes. look to his finishes. And yeah, it can be really, really just uh, uh, shockingly varying in terms of what you're going to get from a Larry Lieber comic. But this one turns out very well. Yes. All right. So that was Tales of Suspense. So now we are going to move on to Tales to Astonish, if I'm not mistaken. Another truly terrible comic. Let me set a five-minute timer for you. Please. You are timed. Okay, let me see if I can get this knocked out. Um, So, yes, any issue that features the human top is going to be an issue that I find incredibly lame. So (laughs) that is what's going on here. On the trail of the human top, uh, the credits are story by Happy Stan Lee, art by Heroic Dick Ayers, lettering by Honest Art Simak. So it starts out with Giant Man giving a retrospective film of his various uh, highlight of his various hijinks to his fan club. And they talk about human top and how, how tough he was to beat. Do all of the Marvel heroes have fan clubs and we just never see the other fan clubs because those heroes just aren't needy enough to hang out with their own fan clubs. I mean, does, (laughs) does Iron Man have a fan club? Does the human torch have a fan club? And like, because Giant Man, this has become a very regular feature of this book. We are now seeing his fan club in almost every issue. And I think we've I think we've seen a Fantastic Four fan club before, or maybe it was just a Mr. Fantastic fan club. Yes. They, was, those are seen as bad. In the Fantastic Four comics, whenever we see fan clubs, they're always seen as, you know, ravenous fiends who are trying to tear the Fantastic Four for apart, literally. But Giant Man has a very different relationship to his fans. He is like, hey, let's all hang out together. Hey, have you watched my latest film strips? Come on, let me show you my film strips, my latest vacation. Come on, what's the matter, guys? Why is everybody turning in so early? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so he's talking about how, how, you know, uh, how tough the human top was to beat, how he's just this almost unbeatable villain, which really think, I think says a lot about giant man. Oh man, I'm glad he's in jail. And of course, then the human top escapes, he goes and he robs a bank. And so giant man and the wasp head out to get him. Now, giant man does this thing and he doesn't warn, uh, Jan about this first. He jumps out the window of the skyscraper that the lab is in. And he has rigged up some sort of a, I, I don't know, what would you call that thing? It's like a, a sort of, it's almost like a fishing rod sort of thing where he's following the fishing line down and there's some sort of spring that's going to slow him down right as he reaches the street. And we see him use this from time to time in the next few months. And it's just, I I, I mean, bring me back the antipult, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Giant Man goes and uh, finds where the human top has just robbed the bank. They are not able to do much there, but then they end up walking back to the office, to the, to the lab, uh, because Jan says, oh no, let's walk, Hank. It's such a lovely day, and I like to show you off. But they're in full superhero costume, just walking arm in arm down the street. So then the human top, of course, sees them and is like, oh, I'm going to take care of this. So we then get back to their office. Um, I, there's a really, there's a, an entertaining panel on page nine where the human top is uh, on a ledge right outside their office window. It says, very touching. It's almost heartwarming to see two people who are deeply in love that way. What a pity the human top is about to break up their little romance. 
forever. He makes it into the lab. He steals the size-changing belt and takes a growing pill. So now he is a 10-foot-tall human top. Uh, and able to create more havoc that way. He traps Giant Man into a... What does he trap Giant Man into? Is that a closet? Yeah. So so he traps Giant Man in a closet, and uh, he then uses his cybernetic helmet to call ants to help him get out. Uh, We we then, of course, have the wasp going, oh, no, it's not so easy to catch a wasp, and then he instantly catches her by putting a little glass down on top of her. So once again, the wasp, never effective at all against anybody ever. Right. So, uh, but then there's this weird thing on page 13 about fabric reducer, which I'm not quite sure how that's different from the usual um, shrinking fluid. But, uh, and then he's got some kind of weird, like, sci fi chariot thing being pulled by the flying ants. (laughs) I love that. uh, uh, Unexplained what's going on with that, like, why that's necessary. But, um, oh, sorry. Uh, Man, I'm just not as good at this as you are. The giant human top is given uh, Giant Man the business. Uh, but then he's now got some termites actually eating the structure of the building, and they end up eating the structures right out from under the giant human top whose extra mass causes him to fall through and get defeated. Not worth the five and a half minutes I just spent describing it, but, <laughs> but this is what we do here. The highlight of the issue is when he says, and here are my flying ants just in time. I'll harness them to my cellophane air chariot within seconds. So you were saying you missed the antipode, but I think this is worthy of the antipode. We then see him. (laughs) He says, let's go, my speedy little winged steeds. Every second counts. And he is on some sort of, looks like sort of like George Jetson's car, but it is apparently made of cellophane and it is being pulled by two ants who are in a harness who have been harnessed together to pull this little flying blue chariot that is apparently made of cellophane. It is awesome. Yeah. Okay. I, I can, I, you have made a good argument. Uh, so then meanwhile, the last thing in this issue is a wasp tells a tale. Um, it, the title of it, uh, involves a reference to the Roma people, uh, which, you know, uh, by a name that they used to be known by everybody in English, but is now considered not an appropriate thing to call them, but it is a troublesome title for a bad story. So <laughs> then we have the usual like romantic what what passes for romantic banter sometimes between them, which is really just sort of them snipping at each other. Yes. Um so yeah. A truly terrible issue of time and absolutely no in no way justifies its own existence. Uh Wasp continues to be totally useless. Giant Man continues to be a totally lame guy who sees has nothing better to do on Friday night than hang out with his own fan club. It is and the human top is one of the world's dumbest villains. So let's move yes. on. <laughs> let's, yes, let's. To the X-Men, if I'm not mistaken. So this one is yours. Yes. So X-Men number five, we have had to, we continue to have Paul Reitman and Sinker on this book doing absolutely gorgeous work, inking Jack Kirby. That continues to be the case here. But we have a much weaker story than the last couple of stories we've had. We had a very good third and fourth issue of X-Men. This issue, it says on the cover, See the most unusual teenagers of all time as they're at their fighting best when they learn the angel is trapped. Magneto and his evil mutants more dangerous than ever strike again. And here on the cover, once again, we have Quicksilver wearing blue and Scarlet Witch wearing green as they were on the last issue, even though they continue to have different colors on the inside of the comic. We then pick up where the last issue left off and poor Professor X seems like he is at death's door. They are very gently carrying him in the door. They are very gently putting him in bed. 
Now, I will go ahead and jump to the end here and say that it turns out he is faking all of this, that he is totally <laughs> fine. And he is, in fact, a dick and is being a total <laughs> dick about this, genuinely convincing them all he's on death's door. Suddenly, Jean's parents show up to visit. They've all forgotten that she's coming over. The regular thing we talk about every episode we do X-Men is how much the Kirby Ryan art looks like Steve Rude, John Nyberg. I, mm-hmm. This week's Steve Rude, John Nyberg panel of the week is the bottom left panel of page three, where Scott is putting on his sunglasses and he's got a little stylistic line on the bottom of his chin. And his tie has no outline around it, which is a very rude Nyberg type thing to do. And it's yes, a that, very... that tie that tie does look although I, I it does look like it has an outline around it to me, but I don't know. Anyway, one way or the other though, it is a very Steve Rude looking pattern uh, for the tie there. Very yes. sort of dis- very sort of uh, uh, designy, as it were. So that they are showing around Gene's parents when whoops, they accidentally lock Scott in the danger room where he is attacked by all sorts of horrible, powerful things that almost kill him because Professor X is a dick. So then <laughs> then you get this really bizarre moment where Jean's parents are like, well, that was a good visit. You know, what a wonderful school our daughter is in. And then they drive away. And as they drive away, they pass Mastermind, who is lurking outside the school. So the Mastermind is hanging around outside. It's like, well, that makes sense. You know, Magneto wants to keep an eye on the X-Men. He's got Mastermind hanging around outside their headquarters. But then we have Mastermind calling in to report back to Magneto, and he's like, I'm sorry, I can't find them anywhere. I have no idea where the X-Men are. It's like, well, then why were you hanging around outside their house, dude? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that <laughs> makes no sense. It's like, is he lying? Or if he's not lying, was it just sheer coincidence that he happened to stray close to the X-Men's house but couldn't find it? And how could anybody have a hard time finding the X-Men? Like, isn't this school a matter of public record? Isn't this? Anyway. Uh, but, they, but they keep they, but characters keep on talking about how mysterious they are and that nobody knows who they are or where they're based or any of that stuff, even though, as you point out, it would be really easy to figure out. <laughs> so then we have they go at masterminds like I'll never find him. I give up little suspecting how close he is. Quicksilver zips by in a little spaceship and then they go up to asteroid M, which is the coolest thing about this issue. Magneto has created his own asteroid. It's a very awesome design by Kirby and it's awesome to give him his own asteroid. Of course, the Brotherhood of Mutants are fighting once again. Toad's hopping all around. Quicksilver is zipping all around. Mastermind is convincing Toad that he's being constricted by cloth. Magneto once again tells him, hey, don't fight so much. They are... (laughs) trying to take care of total invalid Professor X back home at the X-Men. Then they're like, hey, let's do that thing that teenagers love to do. Let's watch a track meet, a televised <laughs> track meet. And yes. uh, they watch televised track meet. And then this is a tremendously dumb thing. There is someone at the track meet who is like, wow, it's the world's best track meet person. Even though he can't run fast, he just leaps everywhere. As a matter of fact, he leaps around exactly in the same way the Toad does, who was the villain we just fought. But they're like, that has to be a coincidence, right? Because after all, there's no way that anyone in the Marvel Universe ever put on a mask that totally changed their appearance. So then <laughs> they go, oh, there's the Toad. And he's, well, they don't think it's the Toad. They're like, here's this guy with this amazing leaping ability. And now he's getting mobbed by people who realize he's a mutant. Uh, so we will go race down there, rescue him. Apparently, they were not far away from this televised track meet they were watching. <laughs> and they rescue him. Finally, you know, to his credit, the angel is like, there's something vaguely familiar about my friend, something disturbingly familiar. Wait, now I know the way you hopped. Only one mutant has that ability, the evil one called the Toad. And then rips off his mask and wig 
to be fair, it is both a mask and a wig this time. And then, <laughs> whoops, turns out to be the Toad. They then have a big fight in Grand Central Station, which Kirby has fun with. I really love the picture of uh, the clock that's in the middle of Grand Central Station being magnetically disassembled. That is awesome. Uh, I just think that's, that, yeah, that is a fantastic panel. Um, so then the rest of the Brotherhood of Mutants are there. They get a big fight with the X-Men. And then they end up kidnapping Angel. And they say, okay, let's take Angel. Let's go back to Asteroid M. And we've got one of theirs. That's good enough haul for today. Then something very odd happens. The Brotherhood of Mutants and Angel are up in Asteroid M. The rest of the X-Men are back down with the Toad, who Magneto has abandoned. And then the Toad suddenly enters into a trance. He says, Magneto, I've got to return to Magneto. Something is leading me to him. I cannot resist. Gosh, he's like a guy in a trance. It's real creepy. Now, does it eventually turn out that this is Professor X, who is still just fine, who is mind-controlling Toad to do this? Or is there some other explanation for this trance? I I don't think so. I, I, I thought that it was related to that magnetic communicator hidden under his sock that is connecting with Magneto, that that had some... That also had something to do with his trance. But I mean, either that or it was just the sort of thing where, you know, once he's no longer either with Magneto or doing his plan as discussed, that he's just so uh, mentally debilitated by not being able to be a toady at that moment that he just goes into an almost catatonic state. <laughs> yeah. But either one of those things could be true. I have no idea. So then he then summons a spaceship to take the X-Men back up to Asteroid M. The big fight resumes on Asteroid M. They are attacking each other in various ways. Once again, we have similar to last issue where Magneto wants to blast all the X-Men out of an airlock and Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch say, no, we're not going to let you do that. Scarlet Witch puts a hex on the machinery, breaks down the machinery. Magneto says, you dare defy the will of Magneto. I'll teach you a lesson then. And Quicksilver says, you will do nothing to my sister while Quicksilver lives. The asteroid starts to come apart. Iceman creates this really cool, like, airlock ice tube uh, to go between the two separating parts of the asteroid that I find is quite clever. Yes, airlock technology has always been a problem in the Marvel Universe, but this is a cool way to do airlock technology. Angel uses the tube as reunited with the X-Men, and they then take one of the flying ships home. Everybody gets home by flying ship, but they're all separated, and the fight is cut short. And then they return home, and they find not only is Professor X there just fine, says, I'll give the professor a report. No need to, Scott. I was with you all the time, listening to your thoughts. You mean you have your mental power back? I never lost it. I only pretended to after our first battle with the evil mutants. But why, sir? Remember, this is a school, and you can't graduate from any school without passing your final exam. Well, now you've all taken your final exam, just as I planned it. And I'm proud to say you've all passed with flying colors. You can, you've proven you can think and act for yourselves. Your training period is over. Congratulations, my X-Men. So this is a strange thing. This is a yes. major turning point in this comic. I thought that the idea of this being a school was a good one. I thought the idea of them being sort of heroes in training was a good one, even if Professor Xavier didn't have to be such a dick about it all the time. But it's sort of an interesting idea that Singley seems to have thought better of it. And he seems to have said, nope, they should not be in training anymore. This should not be a school. They should graduate already here in issue five, which sort of means that, like, why are they all still here from this point on? <laughs> this book becomes yeah. a book with much less of a reason to exist from this point on i find this to be a very strange jumping the gun of a big story development that didn't need to happen for years yeah no i'm i'm totally with you on that that was a very odd decision 
Uh, and yeah, there is, you know, in future issues, it is very much like you said, you know, it's like, why are these, well, you know, it's like, why are all these people still hanging out at the high school they graduated from? Because that gets a little creepy after a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> Every year I get older and they stay the same age. <laughs> oh boy. Um, so yeah. And I, I love just the smug look on professor X's face on the second to last panel there yes. as he's lighting his pipe. He's like, Oh yeah, it was my whole plan all along. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> um, so yeah, I like some of the visuals, the uh, clock being uh, disassembled. Asteroid M is pretty awesome. The destruction of asteroid M is pretty awesome. Yeah. Now um, Kirby does a great job with, uh, you can just tell Jack Kirby, draw an asteroid disintegrating, and he will do it. He will make that <laughs> He will make that come alive for you. And, you know, I, I also like some of how Magneto wraps Angel up in a big metal grating that just is executed very well on the panel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, at one point, a sheet of metal is uh, wrapped up around Scott's face. So that he can't shoot out his uh, beams. Once again, that is just very well rendered and looks fantastic. So yeah, this is a somewhat silly issue, but we do get a lot of cool details. Yeah, I agree. All right. I guess we just have one more to go. That would be the Avengers. And I guess that one's on me. So let me go ahead and pull that sucker up here. Yes. So this is Invasion of the Lava Men, the Mighty Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, and Rick Jones, Giant Man, and the Wonderful Wasp, also featuring the Incredible Hulk. And then you've got a big fight scene on the cover with the Avengers and the Hulk all coming into this cave towards us while the uh, Lava Men are on our side. Lava Men have sort of an awesome trebuchet. It's well-drawn yes. trebuchet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is fantastic looking. And uh, so they're about to hurl a big ball of molten rock towards the good guys. The credits in this one, uh, an epic tale told with high drama and heroic dignity by Stan Lee. Illustrated with deep sincerity and dazzling beauty by Jack Kirby, inked by Paul Reinman, lettered by S. Rosen. So we have Reinman back. So uh, tragically, issue number four is inked by George Bell, and who did a terrible job. But issue three was inked beautifully by Reinman, and now we have Reinman back for issue five. It's a real shame he didn't ink issue four, which was a legendary issue, and instead he's inking issue five, which is not. But he does a beautiful job on it. Well, as you pointed out, though, uh, only about maybe five pages of issue four were legendary. The rest of them were quite forgettable. <laughs> yes, true. Uh, so anyway, the uh, this begins with uh, a nice bit of continuity. The Avengers are returning to their mansion after the mayhem of this month's issue of Fantastic Four with its battle royale between the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, the Hulk uh, all at once. The mansion is pretty much demolished. And they're trying to figure out, you know, what they're going to do with it. They then all are like, well, we got to head off and do our own things for the moment. So they just all go head off in their own different directions, I guess, leaving the uh, cleanup to Tony Stark. They're like, oh, man, it's a shame we wrecked his house. Well, I've got other stuff to do. So (laughs) see you guys later. On page three, there's a panel uh, up at the top right, Iron Man is sitting down, taking off his helmet, sort of uh, ruminating on on his double identity. But is it just me or does this look like a situation of the anchor just erasing the background? Yeah, I mean, what is what is he sitting on? Yeah, right? I mean, this is something that is very much associated that that Vince Coletta, who is showing up next month for the first time and will be hanging around for basically 
the you know at least through the eight uh, through the eighties at least is famous for doing this to Jack Kirby pencils. Paul Reinman not so much, but that really looks like there was supposed to be some sort of chair or some stairs or something like that that he was sitting on. But uh, nope, nope, nothing of the sort. So anyway. Now we get into the story as uh, as it is. There are some scenes of various various places around the world where there is this big sound wave seeming attack that is causing all sorts of chaos and destruction. Uh, reminds me of that whole thing a few years ago where people were worried that there was some kind of sound weapon that was being used at the uh, diplomats in Cuba. <laughs> yes. Thor and Captain America get together to talk about this, and then they see more of the problems happening. They gather the rest of the Avengers. And then there's this thing that shows up at a heavily guarded missile installation in the very part of the country uh, where the Hulk is. They're just discussing a big green sort of molten stone starts poking itself up out of the ground. Uh, The military folks are all freaked out about it. Meanwhile, it just so happens that Bruce Banner comes stumbling back onto the base right as this is happening. And Betty's like, oh, look, it's great. I found him. And of course, Thunderbolt Ross is like, you know, probably wants to have him hung for treason at this point. (laughs) Hung for treason and dating his daughter, uh, both. Which I, I don't think, I don't know if he knows which is worse. So then they're still wondering about what's up with this green thing. So we then see below the earth that it is being pushed up by the lava men they've got some kind of big uh and once again kirby just does a great job with this a big geared thing that is slowly cranking this thing up through the surface and there's like a little gear with a little thing that's supposed to be clicking into it to stop the gear from moving in between things it's really really nicely done meanwhile one thing you've pointed out before whenever there's an alien or in this case not alien but subterranean race uh where there is there are some folks who are looking to destroy humanity for one reason or another there's almost always political dissent of one sort or another that there are there are people who are on one side and people are on the other side. And it's not just like, hey, this is an evil race. It's like, no, this is a race that has a particularly evil leader right now. And some of his people agree with it and some of his people don't. Um, and so we definitely have that because this is the same lava man who showed up in Thor a couple of months ago. And so that guy who had been up on the surface is like, dude, the surface people are actually kind of nice. I found when I was up there, like they don't deserve this. Uh, and uh, the folks here don't want to hear anything about it i like kirby's designs for the other lava men to a certain extent this issue is just an autopilot it's like well you know thor fought the lava man and so now there's just a bunch more lava men and we're just coasting on that thor story but kirby does a fun job showing different sort of head shapes for the leader of the lava men and then the witch doctor of the lava men and uh they're they're nice and cool looking yeah. Uh, now, the, and the witch doctor uh, uh, design does look quite good, although, you know, there is a little bit of a unfortunate associations or implications of uh, the whole idea of the primitive people with their witch doctor. And their, oh, yeah. you know. so uh, that, 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 that left me a little uneasy about this. But yes, certainly the design of the uh, the witch doctor with basically the big fake head mask, the big scary mask that clearly would be hanging on his actual humanoid head uh, is really, really well done. I like it. Um, so the Avengers show up in the desert Southwest, right where this big green thing is. 
They're trying to uh, do something about it. They figure out somehow, and I don't remember how exactly they figured out, that this rock will explode with great force if it if they try to destroy it, if the Avengers actually try to physically destroy the thing. And um, it will go off with such power that it would just cause massive death and destruction. They're trying to figure out what to do. I think that um, Hank and Jan are able to find a weak point on it and identify that and say, oh, this is where uh, Thor needs to hit it with his hammer. If you hit it in that one spot, instead of exploding, it will implode. How they figure this out, I don't know. The, uh, Hank is very smart, and Jan is there. But then you have a nice panel where, at the bottom of that page, Giant Man wants to blow some people away, so he picks up a helicopter and tilts it on its side to turn it into a big fan to blow some people away. Although I think he would need to hold it the other direction because the well, air in that direction instead of blowing her out that direction but it's a nice panel yes uh, that that is one problem with this the other problem that once again i think we've got part of the marvel method with stan lee trying to explain what seems to be a plot hole in jack kirby's storytelling here is that they're underground yep so how is their helicopter there so <laughs> stan lee has this uh thing that says but the towering titan has speaking of giant man has only raced to the surface long enough to seize the Avengers helicopter. <clears throat> then, aided by its spinning rotary blade, he lifts the crap the craft off the ground and then uses it to blow the fan thing on them. So, you know, Stan Lee just has to be like, oh, well, you didn't see it, but since two panels ago, he has run up to the surface, grabbed the helicopter, brought it back down into the tunnels, and <laughs> done this. So the Avengers are finally all able to get themselves free and reunite. Of course, right about the same time, Bruce Banner ends up turning back into the Hulk, and uh, he wants to take out his revenge on the Avengers. So once again, they were about to, you know, try to do what they could do to break apart this uh, this death rock. Um, but now they're having to pay attention to the Hulk. And the witch doctor has some sort of radioactive rod. He's saying, this, my radioactive rod against your whirling hammer. Let us see which is the stronger. And then we have a nice little sequence of panels with Thor getting zapped with huge energy that then for some reason turns him back into Don Blake. And it's not really 100% clear. Well, it says by a one in a million combination of molecules and this, that, and the other, it turns him back into Don Blake. But it's a nice visual. But mm -hmm. this freaks the witch doctor out because he's like, oh, wow, you can change form. Um, oh, wow, okay, you are some kind of like really you know <laughs> powerful warlock or something like that. Uh, but then meanwhile, Don is actually too weak to even tap his cane on the ground <laughs> to become Thor, <laughs> which seems like that's weak. That's really yeah. weak. Uh, so then meanwhile, the Hulk has climbed up onto this doom rock that they're on, and uh, they're afraid that he is going to end up setting the thing off. But they end up tricking him into hitting that place that they had planned to have Thor hit with his hammer. Well, I've been complaining about how useless the Wasp has been, but I should point out that she actually gets to save the day here because only she can fly around in a way that tricks the Hulk into hitting exactly the right spot. And as she does it, she says, yeah, yeah, you couldn't catch a cold, you big ape. So it's great to see her actually get to triumph for once and be very helpful and useful. And then this thing implodes rather than exploding. And Don Blake finally figures, oh, maybe I ought to actually turn into Thor. So he finally does, confronts the Lava Men. He says, um, now return to your homes, to your normal lives, for our mercy is equal, is the equal of our strength. So he says, we will not punish you. We're just going to go ahead and say, 
hey, leave us alone and we'll call bygones bygones. And then meanwhile, Betty is running off to go find Bruce because, you know, oh no, I, I, I really hope that Bruce and the Hulk don't run into each other. It's like, don't, don't worry, lady. That's, that's, <laughs> um, Get with the program. Yeah, exactly. At that point, the Avengers, they're, they're just going to head back home. And then the, we have a bit of a cliffhanger at the end where uh, Rick Jones is coming from their helicopter over to the Avengers and saying that he has just gotten a message from the teen brigade. And it's a, quote, condition red emergency. And Captain America says, well, what are we waiting for? Iron Man says, let's go. And then we're going to have to find out next issue what the code red emergency is. I don't, my, my impression here is that Stanley had no idea. I'm sorry. We don't curse. <laughs> my my impression here is that Stanley had no flipping idea what this condition red emergency was. He just wanted an exciting way to end this issue. I, I do not disagree. So uh, a couple other panels I just want to go back and uh, and call out. There is a bit of, you know, once again, with all of these different relationships, Jan and Hank, Don and Jane, there's usually a little bit of like, uh, whatever the relationship is depends on what we're feeling like this month or what the plot depends on. So um, there's this one panel in this issue where uh, it says a short time later in the medical office of Dr. Don Blake, Jane says, I brought you your lunch and a newspaper, doctor. You've just got to take time out for your meals. And then Blake says, now, Jane, wouldn't you love me as much if I were fat and gluttonous? And uh, then the next panel, she's like all blushing, like, who, who said I love you? She, he's like, oh, it was a joke. Uh, <laughs> it's like, if that's a joke, that's a cruel joke if she's actually into you. Gluttonous? Is gluttonous? Is that a word? Gluttonous? I'm familiar with gluttony. I did not know one could be gluttonous, but I guess I guess why not? I'll take uh, it. Or, or, or maybe if you eat a lot of gluten, you could be glutinous. <laughs> yes. I think that's how I first uh, read it. I was like, glutinous? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. I think it means like gluttony, like gluttonous. Okay. You know, uh, uh, my wife and her mom are both, and I guess my daughter now at this point, too, are, are all very good at baking. And so one ingredient that we have in our baking drawer is just a tub of gluten. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is like so vilified these days. But they're like, no, this is what makes bread so wonderful <laughs> it's the gluten um but then there's also uh earlier in this issue a uh, sequence where thor is sinking into lava and just the the sort of stoic look on his face as he uh sinks into the lava is somehow a little bit funny <laughs> it's just he looks like sort of a statue that's sinking in and uh, he says do not fear lava men no harm shall come to thor there's a scene on page 15 of captain america trying to avoid some lava and the only thing i can think of is the, the childhood game the floor is lava yes and he's like jumping over it to stay off of it um and then and a, uh, a fun netflix game show called the floor is lava as well i don't know oh, if you've ever okay. checked that out but my kids i love don't it. think i have but uh then on page 16 um iron man refers to rick jones as ricky which i think is the only time that ever happens <laughs> yeah, stay with cap ricky i'll hold them off as long as possible so yeah this is um a weird issue. What one of the things I did note is that this is now what at least the third, if not the fourth, or more um, underground civilization that we've got in the Earth. Yes, and they uh, never seem to run into each other. Well, not yet, but you know, we they will. Uh, yes. Well, I don't, I don't know if the lava men will, but I know that Tyrannus and the mole man's moloids certainly will. Um, and then we also had that 
Atlantis. So the Atlantis that's not Atlantis. Um, was well, also uh, an underground civilization. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So we've had at least four uh, underground civilizations introduced just here in these first uh, three years at Marvel. Yes. But yeah, so I, that's that, that's about it for me. Yeah, I would say this is a very weak issue. The weakest issue since issue two. I'd say that the Lava Men don't turn out to be tremendously impactful or meaningful villains that basically we'd seen all we need to see them in that journey into the mystery comic. But it's interesting that a great to which like Stan just can't let go of the Hulk. Like, you know, the Hulk was already in Fantastic Four this month. And now here he is back in the Avengers. He, you know, he used to be a member of the Avengers in issue one. He quit in issue two, but he was back in issue three. And now he's back in issue five. And Stan, like, just get a room, dude. It's time, Stan, for you to admit that you have the Hulk and to give him his own book back, which will happen within a couple months. Uh, I think it's a little longer than that, isn't it? Is it? No, maybe not. I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, so I and I'm looking forward to having the Hulk back, but I, I kind of like, you know, this is, you know, once again, we've been talking about trying to trace the development of the Marvel Universe as it would become. And this whole thing about having the Hulk just sort of showing up in this issue and showing up in that issue and uh, him being an ongoing concern, even though he isn't in, doesn't have a book of his own, um, is I think very much sort of a uh, building the DNA that the Marvel Universe would be patterned after for the rest of the Marvel Universe. Uh, you know, once again, this is how this differs from DC Comics, which was, you know, an agglomeration of various company, various uh, comics companies that have been purchased and acquired in various ways. And so all of their heroes had their own cities they worked in and their own very separate rogues galleries, very little crossover of things. They all just felt very siloed. The Hulk bouncing around all these different issues and having all, all this continuity from series to series is very much just setting things up that that's not the way we do business around here. And that, I think, is a really valuable part of what we get. Sure. Okay. I'll go with that. <laughs> That's it for me. <laughs> okay. So this is, as I said, I'm not going to say a weak month of Marvel Comics because we dealt with four issues of Marvel Comics from this month that we liked quite a bit. It just so happens that the four books we saved for this episode were not as strong, but I enjoyed The Orchard of the Watcher and the rest of them I managed to hopefully have some fun with with you the listener to this podcast yes well this was overall uh this month had some had some pretty good stuff in it it's just that it was mainly front loaded in the way that we did these issues but um yeah we've had a lot of fun and uh this still had some uh some good stuff in it so some good stuff yes yes um all right so um uh, schedule wise uh, i just want to throw out here that it's possible we might be a little bit more irregular over the summer. I have a fair amount of family summer travel stuff that I'm going to be doing. So yes. um, I don't know for a fact that our what that's going to do to our schedule, but it might very well be that it uh, slows us, that it uh, might make it a little, little more irregular. Well, you know, if we have to abandon our families in order to devote more time to this podcast, we'll do it. <laughs> If I did that, I would be homeless. True. Um, <laughs> probably wouldn't work out very well for either of us. But, you know, there's, <laughs> it's all a matter of priorities. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, oh, and it does seem we've picked up some new listeners, and we've gotten another couple of star ratings on uh, our iTunes, which is great. 
so if anybody uh, wants to add to that, either by subscribing or by going and you know rating and reviewing us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else, Audible, please do. So uh, thank you very much, everybody. We really appreciate it. And take care. Stay safe out there. Yep. Great. See you next week, everybody. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.